make the right decision for you. And if the right decision for you as a state is to protect industries within your state, fine, make it. But don't act like you're being financially honest. Don't act like you're in some sort of free market place. You're making a choice. It's okay to make a choice. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are proudly sponsored by Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my intrepid co-host, fiscal policy wonk, chicken connoisseur, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. And I have a special message uh, for this particular podcast episode. I'm told we have a, a rather young listener, probably the youngest listener of the Public Money Pod, and it is your nephew, Emmett Marlowe, and he has got a birthday coming up. So I just want to say happy birthday to Emmett. Indeed. Happy birthday, big man, and thanks for listening. So today we're continuing our conversations with state treasurers. We've had uh, lots of fun with these so far, and Today, we'll be inviting to the show Treasurer Zach Conine from the great state of Nevada to tell us about the goings on there. And, uh, you know, Liz, one of the things that's that's really been really interesting, and I think will continue to be interesting about these discussions is it's getting a sense of the, the enormous portfolio that state treasurers have to manage. So the money is everywhere, of course. And as a result of that, state treasurers are in lots of different types of policy areas, lots of different administrative processes. They can be a real facilitator in the policymaking process, or they could take on a very different role and, and mostly just manage the money and, and steer clear of a lot of the policy debates of the day, really focus much more on just the implementation. It's a unique role that, in that sense that is really a platform that you can do lots and lots of different things with. And it's been interesting to learn about the ways that certain treasurers have approached their role. And uh, definitely something that uh, I think is unique in the world of state government and really unique in the world of public finance. You've been talking to state treasurers for a long time now. And uh, what are some of the, the trends that you've seen, some things that jump out to you as we've had and will continue to have these discussions? Yeah, you know, it seems to me that state treasurers, as I look back over um, the, t the times I've, I've written about them, really kind of choose their forge their own path in terms of how visible they want to be because they their position does give them the ability and the legitimacy to to step in in policy areas because the money connects everything. Um, I've seen uh, a, a number of state treasurers kind of really pick an issue and run with it. And and the the one that comes to mind the quickest is uh, Gina Raimondo, who was state treasurer of Rhode Island. And then she went on to be governor. And now she's the the Commerce Secretary in, in the Biden administration, and that's probably like the most high profile ex example ever of of the the rise of a state treasurer. In some ways, people talk about maybe the governor or or other forms of like a platform to the next highest position. State treasurer hasn't come up a lot, but I think that looking back on some other people um, who have taken that position and really used it to to make a, a salient policy point that may be changing. I mean, especially if you want to run on like fiscal responsibility, which can cross both sides of the aisle. I, I feel like state treasurer is, is a good place to start doing that.
Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod the treasurer of the great state of Nevada, Zach Conine. Treasurer Conine, thanks for taking the time to join us here on the Public Money Pod. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Zach, we're looking forward to getting to some of these these topics with you. Um, first of all, though, let's start off with kind of a, a broad overview, if you don't mind, of how is Nevada doing? What's what's the current financial position? Uh, curious about how all the, the federal funding has been affecting the, the state coffers and in, in planning. Well, we are in pretty good shape right now. Uh, more than 20 months of record gaming revenue, um, plenty of money coming in from the, the federal uh, coffers, and we've got more than $9 billion uh, in the general portfolio right now, which is up pretty significantly from the $2.8 uh, billion it was when I originally took over uh, in January of 2019. But I think it's important when we look at where we are to look at where we were, because Nevada's story unfortunately, is one of boom and bust um, even more recently. You know, everybody knows about the housing crisis of the Great Recession and, and what that did to Nevada, uh, but it was pretty bad. And the pandemic, um, which, you know, we all went through and are still going through in a lot of ways, put Nevada in a very precarious position. Uh, we went from the lowest unemployment rates in our state's history to the highest unemployment rates in the country uh, ever which was pretty bad. We had hundreds of thousands of employees out of work overnight when uh, we made the very difficult decision to shut down gaming and the, the famous Las Vegas Strip uh, here in Southern Nevada. And then we had to work to make sure that those people were taken care of. And that required just a massive amount of emergency preparation, both on the health side, but also on doing things like rental assistance programs and small business programs. Uh, we, like many states, had an unemployment system that, frankly, we just had not invested in at the level uh, that we should. Um, our unemployment system was actually programmed in a language called COBOL, um, which if you're not sure how to program, uh, neither was anyone who worked for us. <laughs> and so we had to go through the process of, of fixing all of that. Now, that led to our, our state's budget cycle. In Nevada, we have um, sessions, uh, legislative sessions, every other year for 120 days which means when we develop a budget, it's the budget for the next two years. The last budget uh, we developed was developed in January uh, through June of 2021, and we're currently developing another one here as we sit in April of 24. But what that means is when you expect something to be real good and then it isn't, cuts are difficult to make. When you expect something to be real bad and then it's better, you end up with more money uh, than you have the ability to spend legislatively. And that's what's happened with us, right? We made some very difficult cuts in 2020. The legislature uh, and the governor at the time made some real hard decisions that put us in a place where uh, we were protected, right, uh, from a downturn, but also in a place where when revenues came in much higher than expected on almost every uh, thing we look at, right? Gaming taxes, live entertainment taxes, sales taxes, Nevada's tax base, I suppose I should mention, we don't have an income tax in Nevada. And so most of our taxes, most of our revenues are uh, based on consumer discretionary behaviors, right? Someone needs to do a thing. And so uh, we expected them to be pretty bad. They were a lot better uh, than we expected them to be, but we don't have a mechanic to adjust budgets mid-cycle, or at least not a great one. And so that ends up with just a ton of money that uh, that we've got, uh, hopefully, to deploy to make Nevada a little bit more resilient down the road. Yeah, how is your your blood pressure during over the last couple of years? <laughs> My blood pressure is just fine. My hairline uh, is in well, 
It might be an early stage. The recession of my hairline might be an early stage indicator of the recession of our country. Yeah. Um, but correlation does not always equal causation. Yeah, it's uh, I can't. I mean, as a fiscal policy reporter, I feel like Nevada always comes up whenever when there's a recession. I mean, it's it's such a tough economic environment to have to plan around when you're when you're sitting sitting in the treasurer's office. I think maybe more so potentially than than some other other places without that aren't, you know, home to a huge gambling mecca, for example. Yeah, I think our the kind of constant line we always say is that when the rest of the country gets the sniffles, we get the flu, right? <laughs> right. And our we've spent a lot of time and a lot of effort over the past couple of decades trying to diversify. Uh, we have seen those diversification efforts work specifically in northern Nevada, where uh, Google and Apple and Tesla and others have moved assets into the state uh, and have continued to diversify and, and create a, an economy that is a little bit more resilient and a little bit less susceptible um, to swings and ebbs and flows. You know, I, I would say we've done the same in, in Southern Nevada, just at a, at a lesser extent, right? Um, the, the pie is just frankly bigger. Uh, majority of Nevadans live in Southern Nevada. There are about 3 million people in the state and about 2 million of them um, in Clark County, which is the county that has uh, Las Vegas and um, North Las Vegas, Henderson, Summerlin, Boulder City, etc. Um, so that kind of one Las Vegas Valley is a majority of our population and features some of the largest hotels in the world um, that everyone is incredibly familiar with. So you'd mentioned, uh, Treasurer Conine, that the you've got more money in some ways than can be spent, at least in in the, for the intermediate or near term or intermediate term. And certainly part of that has meant topping off your rainy day fund, which is a situation that a lot of other state treasurers either are in or, or certainly would like to be in. But I can imagine that have, that comes with some unintended consequences, right? We save up for a rainy day and then either we can't put any more in it or there's other questions then about, are we well prepared enough for a rainy day? Uh, can you talk a little bit about the you know, maybe unintended consequences of, of having a really healthy rainy day fund? Well, I think the the first unintended consequence is that you've seen just a, a massive growth in the rainy day fund metaphor business, right? We're all talking about <laughs> putting buckets in your kitchen and replacing the roof before you build new gutters. And I mean, there's really, there's a, uh, just a, an absolute boom in uh, people making rainy day fund metaphors. <laughs> and I think we, we need to figure out a way to tax it. So we start looking at it and saying, well, you're never going to be able to have enough money in savings reasonably, right? No one is able to have enough money in savings that if they lost their job and their house burned down and their car was stolen, that they could sort of live the rest of their existence without something else having to change. And so we don't necessarily think that the rainy day fund should be uh, a complete replacement government ready to, to slot in when we need it to from a revenue stream perspective. We think it should be there to, to take the edges off, right? And that's kind of what rainy day funds have done historically to make sure that the cuts are not as draconian as they would have to be otherwise. But in Nevada, broadly, in government, the cure is often much more expensive than the prevention, just like in healthcare, just like in 150 other things, right? And so we look at how much money that the state had to spend and the federal government had to spend on programs like rental assistance, on emergency access to food, on emergency access to healthcare, uh, a lot of which would have not been necessary if the social safety nets that were supposed to exist and work had actually existed and worked. Many people 
getting rental assistance. We ran one of the most effective rental assistance programs in the country um, called CHAP. It was the Coronavirus Housing Assistance Plan. You'll notice in any of my pandemic stories, we have a lot of acronyms because in government, we can't pay people more when they do a good job. So we let them name things. Um, so CHAP, <laughs> um, CHAP uh, helped get hundreds of millions of dollars out for rental assistance. Um, but a lot of people who applied for that rental assistance, when you ask, you know, hey, why do you why do you need this help as part of the the Treasury uh, guidance would say, well, my my unemployment hasn't come through yet. So had their unemployment come through, had that system worked, they would not have needed this additional uh, money. And then eventually, of course, the unemployment system did catch up and they got that money. And so, you know, good for them. But from a government perspective, we've effectively then backstopped our own broken system um, in a way that probably wasn't financially prudent just as a country. Yeah, very interesting. And CHAP is, of course, an excellent acronym for a Western state. That makes a lot of sense. But uh, and, but a really interesting point about fix, fixes to the safety net and the need for fixes that may or may not be there. Um, really interesting to hear about the, you know, the way that the way that you're thinking even a little bit further down the road and, and how that might be a bit of a, of a culture shift at the moment. Yeah. And I think it's, it is just easier to focus on good stuff, right? Um, a lot of politicians, myself included, care about getting elected. And um, it is a lot easier to get people excited about your election, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies and cutting ribbons. Um, but it's a lot less exciting to be like, look, we're going to take our current antiquated system uh, that broke when we tried to change the font size in COBOL, and we're going to migrate that system. And it's going to be painful, and people are going to have to spend a bunch of time, and it's going to work a little less well before it works well. And nobody cares, right? They just care that the thing works when they go for it. But sometimes when you're actually stitching together the net, that can be pretty mundane. And folks who are political um, and whose whose interests are aligned with being exciting and positive, um, don't get that work done. All right. Well, we think it's exciting, and I'm sure our listeners think it's exciting. So you're you're good company in that respect, if nothing you know, else. Well, I, I hope everybody's sitting down because we don't want anyone falling out. <laughs> yeah, we, we really do tend to kind of forget forget the hard times or, or look back on them with those rose-colored glasses. Um, how's this for a segue? So uh, a lot of people say that, you know, maybe parents wouldn't have another second child on purpose if they actually remembered how difficult it was when when their first child was a baby. I know for sure that uh, I I can barely remember how hard it was with all those sleepless nights and all that. And I just remember, you know, the cute, the cute, pudgy little cheeks. And so that brings me to baby bonds, which is something that uh, I know uh, several state treasurers are are talking about and pushing and and including in Nevada. So can you tell us a little bit about what Nevada is doing with baby bonds? And I suppose maybe starting off with exactly how they work. For sure. And I don't know if there's a podcast award for transitions, but I do hope you'll invite us to the after party. <laughs> um, okay. So baby bonds. So baby bonds is based on sort of the, the broad belief that in the treasury as the state's chief investment officer, we should focus on things that create long-term return for Nevadans. And investment, as we tell people all the time, at its core is taking a little bit of opportunity off the table now to create a little bit more opportunity, right? Spending a little now to create a lot more in the future. Under the Nevada plan, every child whose birth in the state is paid for by Medicaid, and we can go back to that, 
uh, but it's about 44% of Nevadan uh, children, would have a $3,200 investment made in their name, say baby bond, uh, that would grow between the time that they were born uh, and the time they were 18. And then when they got to 18, they could use that bond uh, for three main purposes and then a catch-all to help purchase a home, to uh, achieve higher education, and we've kept that broad for a couple of reasons, which we can talk about, and to start a small business. And then a catch-all because, you know, in 18 years, uh, whatever treasurer has to administer this program, it won't be me, thanks to term limits. Uh, the treasurer that, that puts that on, she or he will be able to have some flexibility because we have a catch-all provision in there for sort of anything else to increase increase economic opportunities. The goal here is that we know statistically individuals whose birth is paid for by Medicaid are likely to remain on Medicaid as children. They are likely to stay on Medicaid as adults. They are likely to become part of the social safety net broadly, right? Nevada spends 50 million bucks, give or take a little bit less than that, a month on SNAP benefits, for instance, right? And the correlation between these two populations is real high. And so how can we take some group of those individuals and help them break out of the cycle of generational poverty. When we looked at uh, the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco did a lot of surveys to try and determine what the barrier to entry was for uh, primarily people of color and purchasing a home for the first time, right? And what they found was that they were unaware of different programs that were available to help with down payment and other assistance. But more importantly than that, they had no mechanic to get the down payment itself. There was no generational wealth transfer from parent to child. There was no house to pass on. There was no inheritance. The concept of getting what isn't that much money, but the concept of getting that 3% was so out of the realm of possibility that all the other programs that make it easier never became part of the conversation. In the same way that I do not spend a lot of time looking at financing for private jets, there wasn't a lot of, no one's spending the time to figure this out if they don't think it's possible. And so our hope, um, and we've seen this with a couple of other programs, when children, when families know that they are being invested in, uh, in some cases, behaviors change and they start thinking about what they're going to be able to do, which then opens up additional opportunity. Uh, so you alluded, you mentioned earlier that some of these, there are broader uh, uses for these funds. Can you talk about why that why that's the case? So we looked at things that were highly correlated to long-term generational wealth creation, right? Purchase of a home is, is really clear. If you're able to purchase a home, um, that then decreases the amount that you have to spend on rent. And of course, you're creating an asset, right, um, that could be passed on. Um, what we also like about all these programs is that there are existing programs in place at the state level, at the federal level, um, that can help people get a home, right? It could be veterans rental assistance, it could be, uh, or mortgage assistance, excuse me, down payment assistance, et cetera, et cetera. These programs are underutilized at the state level primarily because people don't know about them. And this gives us a touch point, right? We get to talk to this 18-year-old and their family when they're 18, when the dollars are going out the door to make sure that they're leveraging them appropriately because we can connect them to other programs, right? We have a, a touch point with this young adult. On the education side, the higher education side, you know, Nevada has been at the forefront of college savings for quite some time. We're about the 37th largest state in the country and about the second or third largest state from a college savings asset because there's some really great partners for college savings here in Nevada. And so we've seen how much 
either going to college or getting a, a CTE, a career certificate program, or joining a union can help expand generational wealth, right? That, that we can just take people out of a cycle of poverty through education. So that one makes a ton of sense for us and dovetails in with the rest of our work. And then on starting a small business, we know that that can be helpful. And a lot of small businesses fail because they don't have access to capital, right? Um, but this will also let us work with those individuals on creation of a business plan, connecting them with incubators and accelerators that exist in the state and need applicants, helping to make sure that you know they're getting into a small business and not some sort of NFT pyramid scheme. And I don't, I don't actually know that there are NFT pyramid schemes. I know there are pyramid schemes. I know there are NFTs. Maybe they dovetail, maybe they don't. If not, I hope I didn't just give someone an idea. <laughs> We, yeah, we we were just talking about uh, blockchain and crypto and NFT on the podcast not that long ago, and it sounds like something that could definitely be done for a for a truly nefarious person. Uh, one, one other quick follow up on that too, if you don't mind. Clearly, to implement this kind of a program, you are coordinating. It sounds like with many many other parts of Nevada state government. Were those connections? that existed or are you having to kind of build those connections to be able to cut through that red tape and create new processes and do all the things that need to be done to make sure that this program does what's in, what it's intended to do? So we've always kind of joked that <laughs> the benefit about being state treasurer is no one knows what you do. And so no one knows what you don't do. And so we have found a massive amount of opportunity in government leaning into agencies that don't necessarily report to us and trying to help. Right. Not telling them what they're doing right or wrong, but simply being another set of hands willing to do the work. Um, and so we've been able to create pathways between the Treasury and all sorts of other state agencies. Um, and I think generally uh, public servants appreciate a hand um, and public servants appreciate folks who are trying to get a thing done without trying to take uh, all the credit for it. Um, and so we found a lot of opportunity here, at least in Nevada. Uh, through leaning in. And so we've built some of those pipelines. The other thing that we found sometimes is that the the issue, the data share issue is a statutory or regulatory one. And while uh, in the past, uh, you might run into a regulatory or statutory barrier like that and be like, oh, well, that moves into the too hard column. We'll deal with this later. We just go right at it. And so, you know, as, as an example, in, within unclaimed property, during the middle of the pandemic, when our unemployment system was being overloaded, we realized that statistically, some Nevadans who had applied for unemployment insurance would have had unclaimed property, right? It's about one in eight Nevadans have some sort of unclaimed property. So we figured there'd be some overlap. So we ran the list of people who had filed for unemployment insurance against the list of people who had unclaimed property. And we found $10.2 million of unclaimed property owed to people who had lost their jobs. And that was a pretty good day in the early pandemic, right? We were yelling into our masks. We were socially distancing, high-fiving. Uh, it was great. And then we wanted to send them checks because we knew who they were and where they were. And we asked the attorney general's office, as we often do when we're doing something new, which is pretty frequently, because like I wouldn't do well in prison. And <laughs> they're like, well, unclaimed property in Nevada is receptive. You've got to come and say, hey, that's mine. And then the state checks your math. And if you're right, we send you a check. So the next step, of course, was to go to all the agencies that already interact with folks, WIC, SNAP benefits, people getting paid restitution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, state employees, licensed teachers, police officers, and take their names and run them through unclaimed property and try to return their money. Well, what we ran into was that statutorily, most of those groups have 
data protections, right? So that the data of who is a licensed teacher can only be used for the purposes of managing licensed teachers. And so we're running a bill actually right now through the legislative process that would give unclaimed property unfeathered access to that information in order to return money to Nevadans. And so I think, you know, when you, when you talk about pipelines between different uh, parts of the government, at least in Nevada, what we found is that a little bit of leaning in, a joke here or there, uh, and the power of statutory change can get us most of where we need to go. Very interesting. Yeah, that's that's a, an incredible story. Um, one thing I know we also wanted to get to was, uh, quote, anti-ESG legislation. Uh, several states are considering various forms of this. So can you, uh, I want to touch base in, on it and ask you where Nevada is on this and uh, maybe explain a little bit about uh, what what the conversation that's gone on in the state about um, uh, investments that are, are ESG investments. Sure. So we have had this conversation in a number of different ways. And I think broadly where we come down on anti-ESG is that it seems to be a solution in search of a problem. There are certainly ESG funds, just like there were green funds, just like there were, you know, inflation resistant funds that are effectively just marketing, right? Where they are using um, pretty typical screening processes to exclude or include stocks and make people feel better about themselves. And that generally is a marketing piece that I don't think states should fall for for the sake of falling for it, right? But I'm a, I'm a free market guy. I believe that the responsibility lies within the fiduciary um, and that whatever the rules are to replace the fiduciary should be used if, if, if the people who are paying them, right, in, in our case, um, the citizens of the state of Nevada or retirees or anyone else believes they're not doing a good job. And I think not allowing a fiduciary to use any information available to them is malfeasance at the highest level. Um, and the concept of saying we can read some things but not other things because these other things somehow offend the sensibilities would be insane. And it's insane to me from a free market perspective that we have theoretically financial libertarians out there saying, you know, well, you absolutely cannot do work with this company because this company and their shareholders have made a decision that they don't want to invest in X, Y, or Z. And when we look at ESG and the components, those are things we've been looking at in companies forever. Are you going to tell me that if there are two tech companies that are exactly the same and one is based in Silicon Valley and the other one's based in North Korea, that you're going to value them equally? Of course you're not. Governance matters. Are you going to tell me that if a company is out there selling um, oil futures on whale blubber, that you're going to invest in them the same way that you would invest in Chevron? Of course you're not, right? Because the world changes. Data is important. And so our argument in Nevada and our argument nationwide is, Make the right decision for you. And if the right decision for you as a state is to protect industries within your state, fine, make it. But don't act like you're being, you know, financially honest. Don't act like you're in some sort of free market place. You're making a choice. It's okay to make a choice. Texas made a choice that they want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars of public funds in additional costs to issue bonds because they don't want certain underwriters to play in that market. That's a choice. But be honest about it. 
right? The government certainly at times will say, hey, we want to spend more to build this project because we think it's important to create um, middle class sustaining jobs, right? Because we think that project labor agreements or organized labor are generally good for our citizenry. That's a choice we're making, but we should be honest about it. What recourse is available to residents whose money is getting invested if, if they don't agree with the approach? Well, they can vote for someone else. And I think that's, you know, the broadly, right, that is the tool that we have in a lot of cases to to make choices. And I, I don't think that I don't think that laws are great at stopping individuals or making individuals think in a certain way. Right. And so if I was required to only purchase ESG funds, I would still look for the ESG funds that were the most effective at reaching the fiduciary goals of the state of Nevada. If I was prevented from purchasing them, I would still look for the things that were most effective for the state of Nevada. It wouldn't change what I would do. It might limit some of my tools and make that work less efficient. I also think that there's an argument to be made um, to uh, proponents of ESG that a lot of the major players in climate change fighting work are legacy energy players, right? Some of the biggest solar manufacturers uh, are also the biggest fossil fuel manufacturers. And I, I think there is an argument to be made from a shareholder advocacy standpoint that you can get more done in the house um, arguing for a focus or a shift uh, in behavior than you can get from the outside of the house. And I, I use that as a transition into the one bright line that we have drawn here in Nevada, which is that the state doesn't invest in retailers or manufacturers of assault style weapons, primarily because we think they're crappy investments. Um, and that's a scientific fact. Um, but also, there is no shift of behavior. We're not going to shift them from legacy firearms manufacturers to devices that aren't used to kill kids. That's just not what the product does, right? And so we've drawn a hard line that we don't think that there is a way to lean in and make that industry more effective, that that's an industry that by and large costs the state of Nevada and every other state massively from a cost perspective and just from a human life perspective. And so we chose to get on the other side of it. But... Nevadans could make another choice. And that, that, to some extent, is the tool that we have to push back on these things. But what I worry about is that we are effectively creating a nation that is so divided on this concept of ESG that does not hold up to any sort of actual argument um, that we're going to have some states that are in a financially much worse position because they are choosing to effectively uh, remove half of the competitive market or more than half of the competitive market um, from being able to invest or do work in their state. Uh, we want everybody to come to Nevada, right? If you're doing something that isn't illegal or immoral or unethical, we'd like you to be there. Um, and to be fair, there have been times where we've, you know, kind of moved a line on morality a little bit um, to our economic benefit. It's an interesting line, I think, that state treasurers walk because you are elected. You do have political opinions, uh, but there's also that that fiduciary duty that is very much in the job description. And merging those two is what I think every elected state treasurer has to do is to uh, come to the position and, and be able to articulate and reason reason it out the way that you've just done. Well, and I think this is this is really where we get so confused as to the ESG, the anti-ESG push, because the argument on the other side isn't that we shouldn't or we should invest in these things, it's that we shouldn't be able to consider them. 
that we shouldn't be able to read about them. I read about firearms retailers all the time, just like every other industry. And if at some point we found that, gosh, man, that those are the bonds we need to own in order to provide the best return for Nevadans, then I would go back to Nevadans and say, hey, look, the market's changed. Maybe we need to make a different decision. Or the market's changed. I'm not going to make a different decision. And here's why. But to say that we shouldn't be able to read certain things, to say that thinking or discussing about a thing is somehow in itself dangerous to the fiduciary process is broadly insane. Mm. Well, Nevada Treasurer Zach Conine, thanks so much for taking the time to join us and sharing lots and lots of interesting insights on uh, the world of public finance in Nevada, the role of the treasurer, and uh, lots of other good stuff. We really appreciate you taking the time. No, thanks so much for having me. And I, I look forward to when you do this show live uh, from the Las Vegas Strip. <laughs> Excellent uh, suggestion. <laughs> that, that it may be well attended, it may not. I, I, we're willing to try, put it that way. Thanks again to Zach Conine. That was such a fun conversation, and, and I love his sense of humor. <laughs> it uh, it makes for a lot of laughs, and um, maybe sometimes in his position you have to be able to laugh. Um, he mentioned ESG uh, among many other things, and in state treasurer offices and this whole anti ESG legislation that's moving through some states. Um, I wanted to point out for our Ripped from the Headlines segment this week that just recently, a few days ago, Indiana lawmakers gave approval to an anti-ESG investing bill. There's a story by the Associated Press's uh, Tom Davies out about it. It says that the Indiana Republicans have pushed through a proposal, and this happened um, on Monday, so a week ago when this podcast will air. It passed the House, and, and it's already passed the, the state Senate. And the bill aims at preventing leaders of the state's pension fund for teachers and other government workers from investing any of their money. And they have about combined $45 billion, any of their money with firms that consider environmental, social, and governance principles in their investment decisions. The bill now goes to Republican Governor Eric Holcomb for his decision on whether to sign it. And a couple of points the article makes is that the Indiana Pension Board hasn't said whether or not it's followed uh, ESG investment strategies. That's not something that has necessarily come up in, in public conversation. The Indiana Chamber of Commerce, when the bill was first introduced, and a couple of other big business organizations actually objected to it. This I found interesting because Zach kind of echoed this, but they said that that earlier version of the bill proposed investment limitations that are, quote, anti-free market. Uh, but then the, it was revised, it was rewritten. Uh, the Senate later removed provisions, such as one that would have made the state treasurer's office compile and publish a list of companies that it found had made ESG investment commitments. Sounds like a, a, a good thing to take out. Um, okay, and then supporters of the ESG investing principles argue that it's financially prudent, actually, to consider such issues, as such as whether a shift to green energy makes investing fossil fuel companies, investing in fossil fuel companies riskier. So there's a, a statement going around called the freedom to invest statement that sort of takes this, this argument on. And I think as, as Zach mentioned, so this is Indiana, this just happened uh, this week. I think the, the governor is expected to sign the bill. Uh, 
it follows Oklahoma, Texas, West Virginia have enacted similar laws. Um, currently, uh, Florida and also Montana appear to also be moving in this direction. Again, this is something that is happening in, in now a handful of states. What stands out to me in this bill is that there's actually a quote from one of the Republican lawmakers. He says such a ban is needed in Indiana to ensure that financial returns trump all. And and so what interests me about that is Zach mentioned mentioned the same thing about being a, having a fiduciary duty to to make the best possible investments for for taxpayers. And he clearly is leaning one political way. Obviously, uh, Indiana Republicans are very much leaning the other way, but they're using the same concept of fiduciary duty to make their point. That, to me, right there speaks about how political ESG investing has become. It, it wasn't, I think, it wasn't always this way. Making environmentally sound investments um, was generally not a, a good idea, I think, that for most people. But then as it formed into this ESG and became more politicized, you have investment decisions and investment responsibility getting all mixed up in politics and the politics of climate change as well. And the anti-ESG stuff that's making its way through a lot of Republican states, to me, is just the latest example of politics intermeshing with what exactly is climate change and, and the definition of it. And so um, th those are some of the things that, that stood out to me with this. And Justin, what did you what was your take on this? Yeah, thanks, Liz, for bringing that to our attention. And as you said, it really dovetails nicely with some things that were came up in the conversation with Treasurer Conine. I think for me, the, the part that really stands out was something you said early on that is mentioned in this piece, which is how the discussion about this legislation have happened in Indiana and in many of the other states that are going in this direction, almost independent of the people actually making the investment management decisions and policies. So there's these high level restrictions that are put in place at the state level, but the people actually managing the portfolios, the the chief investment officers and executive directors of the state pension funds, the state pooled investment funds, all of these other entities that will be directly affected by this legislation seem to have been at a distance from the decision making. And I suppose we can debate all day whether that's a good thing or not, but it definitely does speak to, as you were saying, how this is a, a policy choice that's being made largely independent, it seems, of the financial implications. We don't know all that much yet about what happens when you do these sorts of statewide policy initiatives. I think we're going to learn a lot because there's a lot of them happening now. And there'll be a lot of feedback, I think, from the market about what happens when you do this, when it creates that kind of in potential uncertainty for investors. Uh, or on the other side, potentially, as the advocates of, of this sort of legislation have said, when it makes really clear where the state stands with respect to its economy, uh, where it stands with respect to its values, and maybe that clarity and that signal does something too. I just we just don't know, but it is interesting, as you said, that the people who actually manage the money are the ones who are often at arm's length from these laws when they're made. So it'll be again really interesting to see how it shakes out, and I appreciate you bringing it to our attention. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association.